Hello and welcome to the Attribution Marketing Podcast, where we help businesses, brands, and entrepreneurs get more out of their marketing and advertising spend. On today's episode, we have Matt Chevillard from Blue Scarpa and Limone. He is a man of many languages and worlds and projects and brands, to say the least. So we're going to learn from Matt about just what it takes to go from zero to a hundred on creating your own brand, selling it to customers, and doing that entire loop and experience. So Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you? All good, brother. Nice to connect. Here, uh, happy to partake and obviously share my story. And I'll be, you know, hopefully it's interesting and captivating. So give me the elevator version of how you got into footwear, just branding in general, and uh, just the whole quick career arc and how you got into the position you're in. Yeah, I'd say in short, I've always been a consumer first. And I think was always driven by that perspective of finding a better value proposition that I just didn't see out there. So I think that was fundamental, both from a passion standpoint and uh, just background and context standpoint. So I think that was the baseline and prerequisite in all. So based on that, just jumped into it blindly at a young age, I think there too, that's definitely the ideal time to just really take stabs out of high school, started to shoot companies, specifically a velvet slipper company, uh, if you will, with two buddies. Soon thereafter, I transferred from University of Georgia to the UM. I took it over from them and slowly started implementing the moves and the times of growth within that company. So that, in short, was really utilizing my background, both being Italian-born and American-raised and you know, representing this melting pot of a mindset as well, trying to mix both the best of both worlds with that said. Specifically, we started with a velvet slipper. It was called the Prince Albert slipper. It was a formal, formal slash traditional loafer slipper, if you will, not really like a house slipper. It was more of a loafer than a slipper, but referred to as the Prince Albert slipper. Entered into the marketplace, got our foot in the door through that. That was definitely an undersaturated element of the game. Got lucky mixed with just you know lucky and at the right time the velvet slipper became very trendy at that given a couple of years afterwards Kanye west and a variety of people started endorsing it and pumping it and through that realized that it was a very elitist shoe not really made for any wholesale context started teaming up with bloggers influencers anyone who had whatever form of reach. This is definitely in the infancy stages of that world we worked with man repellers blonde salad Ferrani. Who else? A variety of people in that vein. Generally, these were young entrepreneurs in their own right. So, you know, they're very happy and excited to work with people like me, who are, we all were doing similar but different things. So, generally speaking, it really wasn't a pay for play thing. It was really just, hey, make a shoe for them and they would endorse it and promote it. And through that and enough of those relationships, was able to snowball that into kind of a little bit more of a conventional of a shoe brand. And then I was able to approach retailers after having my having the door slammed in my face a million different times i think also within that period and that growth we started tackling all the different weaknesses in the offering if you will that forced that door to be slammed and slowly start alleviating though the reasons why someone might slam a door one example is the origin of manufacturing in luxury the thing that someone asks you they hope you say china so they can say hey we don't we struggle with independent brands made in China. So made in China, no matter how cool something was back in the day, people are like, hey, 
focus on shoes made in Italy, England, Spain, nothing really short of that. So tried fixing that, moved manufacturing to Spain, eventually to Italy. Then obviously people ask you the next most popular question would probably be people ask you what stores you're carried in slowly, but surely started working up the ladder of the different sort of boutiques and the caliber of boutiques we worked with eventually getting to the the paradigm or pinnacle of that working with the Bergdorf's, the Barney's, the Saxes, the Webster's, the, and all the international versions of that as well. And then I, I snowballing and accruing the marketing arm of influencers and bloggers and celebrities. And through that's their next big break was really starting relationships with the stylists and the NBA players, specifically that too, being in the right place at the right time. It was the moment where the heat, where the epicenter of the NBA and the style kind of focus of really menswear, if you will. And, you know, with LeBron, Chris Bosch and Dwayne Wade teamed up, Dwayne became my close homie and top customer and face and we worked on a collaboration together in a shoe and the natural endorsement of my brand. I was suffocated in the Miami realm. So I took a big step and leap into New York City just to try to find opportunity and respect and just open up more deal flow. Tell us what you mean by that. You jumped into New York City. What did that mean? It was, I think I always benefited and really enjoyed being a big fish in a small pond, if you will, in Miami, just being a secondary market for fashion. And that said, we're looking to compete on an international scale as a luxury fashion brand. It just simply was not out of Miami. You were, you were entering into the game with an extreme handicap, but that was your intent. So the optics of that being, if you were a quote unquote legitimate fashion company, you were based out of New York or LA, probably most likely New York. So just already there, I was always handicapped and looked down upon. And I think I've heard everything under the sun at the time on how the brand was started, where it came from. People would be like, oh, your grandpa started it, didn't he? Oh, it's a family-owned business. So I think that was kind of just like the connotations and baggage of being located in South Florida and growing my business in South Florida. A lot of people were like, oh, he's not a bad Brit. I felt stifled not having the avenues and opportunities and potential partners in Miami accordingly. So really deep dived into the land of opportunity that's in New York and opened up a store with the intent of both getting the respect I wanted and also opening up the opportunities that I thought the brand and I deserved. In hindsight, I have absolutely never taken on that level of risk just because it certainly outweighed any potential upsides, just given extreme risks that it is signing a $30,000 a month rent next to Prada. It served the purpose. It opened up a lot of doors, but the stress and liability and exposure from that was insane. But being obviously young and adventurous and naive at the same time, like that seemed like the only option. And I didn't want to waver. And I felt like back to the point of addressing all my voids or weaknesses, that was the one thing that I had that I was missing in terms of like argument. How do I compare myself to these LVMH Karen brands? I was able to legitimately go toe to toe on every level other than I don't have my own shop in New York. So to me, it was like, do, does X, Y, and Z celebrity wear your product? Yes. Does, you know, are you carried in these stores? Yes. Is your shoe made in Italy? Yes. Does your shoe luxury price point? Yes. Pound for pound, the shoe to me was more unique, better made, better priced, cooler than any shoe in the marketplace. The only thing that I felt was a disadvantage to me was I didn't have the critical mass or brand awareness needless to say that these big traditional luxury powerhouses had. And I think that's also a major factor was I was painstakingly stubborn 
also just because I couldn't afford any help on figuring out how the hell I could do it all on my own. And so in a very stubborn way, you know, I literally did every aspect under the sun that a brand needed to do. I ran my own PR, I did my own marketing, I did my own designs, I did my own product development. Sure, like with my team in Italy, my, my shoe engineers and backend staff there, we literally did everything in-house and really didn't rely on any sales, on any PR marketing, on anything for that set. So it went where at first I did it by default because I couldn't afford it and to hire anyone to do it. And then eventually when I could, it was like, why would I pay you when I do it better? So it's just, it got to a point where the missing weakness or void was really an only I don't have a store next to the other luxury brands in the world. So I deep dived in New York. It was a very turbulent slash incredibly eye-opening experience at that. And what doesn't break you makes you is the the theme, I'd say, of that experience because it was half or two years and change to follow because it went from deep diving into a situation and obviously being naive and exposing myself to landlords, potential partners, and all sorts of people. I became wildly vulnerable and exposed during that moment. Let me pause you right there just to level set here. So to be clear, right? You have an idea to make a a shoe company. It turns out to be a a velvet shoe slipper slash company you do with a few friends. You eventually take control of the business, right? You expand it. Now you're in Miami. You're doing well in Miami. It's a, it's an idea, but you're, it's growing, it's getting bigger. And then just explain one little leap for me. How did you go from that point to like sort of the Dwayne situation? Yeah. Like skip like 15 steps right there. How did that was like yeah. a six month period where it was like everything happened to feel like it's super important lesson. I think the optics or trajectories or expectations an entrepreneur might have, you know, I think when you're young, looking at the world in abundance, you're saying, Hey, I want to go to the moon. I, I can do that. Especially when you start hitting those initial strides, you're like, no, no one said I could do this. In fact, everyone said this idea was really silly and laughed at me. And now it's working and I don't need anyone anymore. So it was, I think that's the difficult part because then you're like, okay, now I'm running with this. Now I'm going to not listen to anyone and I'm the guy. So I think it becomes very dangerous with that stead because you start upping the ante too much because we started rapidly growing. I'd say the quintessential exponential growth. We went from 250K to 500K to 2 million to 4 million in sales. Parentheses being like, this is a very green, raw Instagram world right now. So I definitely benefited enormously from just the entrance of Instagram into the marketplace and the ability of you being able to market on Instagram, which obviously is very different. Now it's a big pay-per-play and algorithm situation obviously this is pre-facebook yeah. and everything as well tell, tell us about that change because i know that was a big part of, of how you launched all your projects back then and you were very early to that and obviously very successful with it so why did it work yeah. then and it doesn't really work now i think it was just too good to be true we went from all these traditional formats of both distribution and reach you know whether it was old print you know journalism and new york times to gqs to Condé Nast things or or showrooms or trade fairs you had all these traditional platforms that you would tap into obviously for pay to to get access to and to expand so back then you had all these traditional formats like being a small guy kid not having cash and not having investors or anything it was just like hey this free 
Yeah, this, this seems like it would work. And then it started working. So it was like, okay, why would I pay anyone for any of this stuff? Like everyone, you just got to connect dots. And if I can figure out people that I see eye to eye with, bloggers and influencers need me as well to, to balance the corporate deals and all this stuff. So just figured out the time in this like very wild west of a marketplace had to tap into stuff and run with it accordingly. Now it's obviously a completely different ball game because influencers and bloggers and all these people who are obviously the new, arguably the new Conde Nast and the new journalist and the new platform, the new magic trade shows. Like these people represent insane reach and rightfully so deserve to be compensated. So obviously it's a pay-for-play situation across the board with the constituents like them to Facebook slash Instagram to all these people. Facebook it made it a great investment, obviously banking on Instagram's platform, which people like me benefited free on. I'll jump in. What I feel like, so it's harder to sort of uh, get the free reach or maybe even get in touch with these people or get, get a free post. All those things are <laughs> more, more challenging. But the question is, especially with the algorithm, obviously, where you're, it's the opposite. And now you're buried instead of but, put on. But let's just say this, like even all those challenges, you're still sort of able to, whether it, you do it in real life or on your phone or somehow, you're able to find artists and brands and collaborate. And you're still staying at the cutting edge of what's uh, relevant culturally on the platform. And as, even as difficult as it is, you're still able to play in those circles. So imagine you're a boring brand listening to this. How do you break into that? If they were going to reach out to you or an influencer wanted to get in. I, I think today it's much more about tailored fits and much more about target marketing. And it's much more about speaking exactly to your customer because it's too damn expensive to try to do anything else. So I think now... The new opportunity, the new lane that I have, which is similar but different, is just, hey, let me carve out a bunch of independent lanes that are super tight and very specific, and let me just cater to that accordingly. So my goal is not being the next blanket lifestyle brand. My goal is like, hey, now I want to be the number one penny loafer guy. It's very specific. It's built on a foundation that's the core, and it's building it out accordingly and just trying to accrue the right people have also changed my price point. I've gone higher. I've also been very aggressive on no discounts, no sales, no just diluting of the brand in any way because the idea is to keep it small and tight. I've also essentially cut out wholesale as well. Yeah. So it's just so now, so now it's just a much more targeted, much more tailored offering slash value proposition. Beforehand, my original goal was like, hey, let me like make an awesome, amazing bang for your buck value proposition for everyone let me make it at this certain price point that i can be the entry level luxury point obviously through experience i learned that was no man's land also like me trying to be a niche player in the big boy world those just don't add up you know i had to i didn't have the finance capacity to not discount i didn't have the finance capacity of being a tight enough business that didn't have to like waver on stuff so now i think i've just you know developed a much much tighter concept instead of making thirty thousand pairs of shoes a year previously now my approach is i sell wholesale to webster and five doors i do that because they're the best store right now in the world and I want to participate in wholesale on an accessible front because there's, there's just too cumbersome of a, of an approach in 
opening my own retail stores. So obviously benefiting and working with partners like the Webster who have incredibly prime real estate in beautiful cities and amazing architecture and layouts. There's a benefit to me doing it, but it's done on a super small scale. You know, my average sales price doesn't plummet from that. So I think just really to pivot, tailor your value proposition and your target market accordingly. So you don't need to just, you know, cold call and discount to get engagement. You know who you're trying to engage with and you're targeting to that smaller pool. So it's a lot less misses and there's a lot less just fat and inefficiencies with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, nice. I think one one time you told me in another conversation how you didn't want to be basically air quotes, just another Instagram brand. So what is the difference between getting a couple wholesale relationships and PR and celebrities, uh, you know, and influencers and that whole machine versus you, you pop up a Shopify store, you get dialed on the advertising campaigns and you might sell a hundred thousand t-shirts, but you're left with no brand equity. What is the difference right. to you? What break that down? I think it's the whole premise of all depends what marketplace you're operating. You talk t-shirts, you're already talking a super low barrier to entry marketplace, something that all in all, anyone can jump into, participate in. Anyone can go to the moon quickly. The, the catch with that, because obviously with anything of that nature, the equivalent the, on the back end can happen. Anyone can go to the bottom just as quickly as they go to the top. And the competitive is super, the competition is super fierce. Obviously, a lot of design is non-patentable or protected. There's not too many components. There's not too many, there's not any barriers that protect an entrepreneur in investing and growing their respective concepts. So obviously in footwear, as it pertains to t-shirts, to footwear, for instance, footwear, the benefit of footwear is really like, it's not something that you can just jump in. It's something that there's an age long tradition. You're dealing with cultures in other countries and you're dealing with a shoe can have anywhere from 10 to 50 different components slash suppliers in each shoe, all requiring skilled artisans across that whole process. So, so to answer that question, you have to be really dedicated, not just be quintessential. Because I think right now. With that said, there's hyper trends going on and there's a lot of FOMO and our, our generations and our demographics right now in the United States lend itself to that. And that's dangerous because if you can tap into it, if you can have a super aggressive proposition and be super aggressive on Facebook ads, on selling widgets, on just selling, let's say something that's already on, on Amazon, but marked up 30% on Instagram. You can create a very successful concept. The problem is that there's intelligent people out there that are like, wait a second, how much is that on Amazon? You know, <laughs> you, so yeah, you can obviously on a short scale and on a small scale, get a business going fast, but in reality, like what's your foundation? What are your core competencies and what do you actually have to protect you on a sustainable front? So I think that's the key. Businesses can be, can be construed and approached in a variety of different ways. You can start a business as a lifestyle business that you just want to have fun with and it can provide for your lifestyle. Or you can try to juice up a business to IPO it slash raise equity, cash out and move on. So I think it's all like why experience is so key. It's impossible to know those optics and have that experience in your 20s because you don't know what the hell you want first and foremost and you don't have the experience to know it especially. So older and wiser, being in my 30s, obviously, I have a bunch of different plays in the marketplace doing all those different things just to diversify and allow myself to have a foundation where I'm never panicking or having to make 
decisions that I'm not comfortable doing because I need to keep the lights on in my business. That's what I wanted you to share a little bit more on, right? So like what the, what the future is, obviously you caught fire with one project and you had a ton of success and learned a bunch of lessons at the same time, but now you got a variety of other projects. Explain how you sort of have diversified your revenue streams and what you're doing in the fashion industry to make a more sustainable lifestyle, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think the bottom line is just that diversification is key and not being exposed is key and being able to construct. And I realized obviously back on the kind of micro play concepts, like I found that the marketplace was much more, much more ready and much more prone for micro concepts versus these like blanketed macro lifestyle concepts that were like, hey, we do everything, come over here. Was like, no, like people want to buy the best from the best now. So if you want to operate and tell someone, don't go to Prada, don't go to Gucci. I specialize in this and I do it better and it's half the price and it's cooler. That is a legitimate, scalable, and sustainable value proposition. So I'd say I've learned to diversify just because I've learned how to objectify my vision. And I think that I've been reading a lot of self-help book, leadership books, everything across the board to put that into perspective, you know, was really just marrying the telescope to the microscope. And that was like the most profound, simple encapsulation of that, which is like as an entrepreneur and as a quote unquote visionary, the idea is you can have whatever vision and it might be the greatest, but if you can't relate that day into the microscope and to actually keeping the lights on in the business, it's as good as nothing. So I think you have to really carve out respective lanes and respective ways and mechanisms where the telescope and your grand vision is married to day to day. So both of those can synchronize and then you're not forced to be reactionary or make decisions that you wouldn't necessarily be comfortable doing on either end. The example, like, hey, I want to be the hottest, best luxury brand in the world. That's my telescope vision. Reality is I can't sell my shoes. Can't afford to pay my factory. That's where it's okay. Telescope and microscope weren't talking to each other. Because, you know, that is absolutely crucial. So I think, I don't know if that, that explains this sentiment of that, but I think that's just the bottom line. Like, you really have to objectify your vision, you know, not bite off more than you can chew is the ultimate reason. I think entrepreneurs are obviously entrepreneurs because they have higher risk tolerance than most people, but entrepreneurs can also fall on their ass many different times, if not every time, if they don't learn from their mistakes. My mother's always ingrained that in me that the definition of insanity is not learning from your mistakes. So I think for me, I learned from oversights, from neglect, from just inexperience, from just not being strategic in anything I approach. You know, I think the bottom line as a kid, you're very spontaneous and you're very shoot off the hip. As you get older, you know, life's too short to assume that sort of exposure and risk. So you start to just, you know, nibble instead of take big bites, if that makes sense. And obviously readjust and continue readjust until you start to walk and until you finally start to run, if that, if that makes sense. So, hey, how about this one, man? For all the guys listening to this or, or, or gals as well. What are the quick fashion tips to make people who are, you know, they're so scared to uh, do anything. So what uh, you taught me a lot about fashion. So how do you just push people into the, into the game so they can start being a little more creative and start taking notice to things? Having a brand, right, is just narrating a story. Narrating that story and articulating the vision. Back in the day with Del Toro, my goal was like, hey, let me just get more men to care about how they look like. I grew up in Italy. I know certain people and I've always loved fashion and luxury and I've always, it's always made me feel good. It's always excited me. 
It's always been a value add. I think back in the day, pre-MBA, pre-menswear, pre-style, like fashion was very metro. It was very Euro. It had all these like weird connotations to it that eventually like men started realizing that there is just all around value created and caring about how you looked both in terms of exercise and in terms of look like actual style. Because in the end, it, it increases your likeness of finding a female or a male partner it obviously allows you to feel better it's a win-win in that regard so i think how do i teach it you know my goal in terms of marketing and everything conditioning and empowering people to be able to make their own decisions i think that's key and that's a key of what i've always tried to do is and let me allow you to understand my vision and and come along for the ride if you will and listen to my narrated stories experiences and things all serve as little mini building blocks that ultimately like, contribute to this narrated story, which hopefully allow people to be like, oh, I get it. I want to try that. Oh, wow. I got a bunch of compliments. Oh, wow. I feel better. You wear a pair of shoes and five people would be like, what are those? Well, they're so cool. And people have no one's ever come up to me before. So that empowered people. And people were like, I told oh. them what's up. Always at their airport, man. Yeah. Generally never a, customer, a potential customer, <laughs> regardless. No, exactly. So just positive reinforcement. And you're like, whoa, emotions were stirred. And I just, I was reinforced that I made a good decision. Obviously, we're all humans and everyone's all, everyone's obsessed with forward progress. Everyone likes to be told and felt that, wow, that decision was, I did that. Cool. So, and the beautiful thing is a shoe is something you need regardless. So it's not even a totally useless thing. So it's something that someone's buying regardless. You just have to condition someone that's like, hey, that extra couple hundred bucks, two, three hundred bucks, whatever it is that you would normally spend, it goes a long way. Like, you know, you could keep the same shoe on for six months. There's a lot of banging, bang for your buck. And that's what I've always enjoyed about footwear. As much as it's fashion, it's a consumer good more so. And I've always tried to condition it as that because, yeah, it's unnecessary. I'm never going to tell anyone it's a necessity. But at the same time, like, you're not walking out on streets without footwear. So to some degree, it is a necessity. It's just all relative. At what price? I don't know oh. if I actually answered that question, but it's all good. More, more than answered it. I would say, so we always talk about stories and brands and the whole thing. So here we are today is today. Where should folks go check out your latest project and uh, tell them the, the domain and the URL so we can send them your way. And thank totally. you so much for being on the show. No, I appreciate it. You've always been a conduit for learning and I think empowering the entrepreneurs. Obviously, I was uh, very interested in helping that cause. So thank you for having me. Uh, you can find my products. I have a, a store in the design district in Miami. It's beautiful. We're located in front of Berluti in St. Laurent, above the cafe on the second floor. It's a, we call it a blue oasis. So my brand, Blue Spark Book, can be found here and or at the Webster, five different locations around the United States and or our website, bluesparkbook.com. This is my other brand. It can likewise be found on, on in the Design District Boutique and its website, onit.com. And yeah, those are my two luxury footwear brands. And then I have my art gallery that likewise operates out of the space. And that's the office MIA. Everything can be found both on the website and on Instagram. And yeah, I think that's everything in a nutshell. In a nutshell, you might say. I don't know if it's <laughs> everything. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's everything. But uh, Matt, thanks again for being on the show again, folks. If you have any interest in footwear or fashion, please go to bluescarpa.com. That's with a U, so B-L-U-S-C-A-R-P-A.com. You can check out Matt's art project at The Office MIA. 
and just Google Matt Chevillard or Matthew Chevillard. You'll find all his social media links. We'll put links to those in the description as well. So Matt, thanks again for being on the show. This is the Attribution Marketing Podcast, signing off.